0: Welcome to The Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is a man that I've wanted to interview for some time. His name is Dr. Zach Bush. I very much respect his work and his perspective. He's done a tremendous amount for, I mean, really, our, our world, I would say, in my opinion, and has brought to light some really important aspects of our health system, our farming system, Our ecosystem, our food system, how we eat. Um, But before I bring him on, I want to just have a bit of a a dialogue, even though I guess you can't necessarily um, rebuttal (laughs) or talk back right now or engage in the conversation, but I would encourage you to do so online. Feel free to DM me with your thoughts after this episode at Man Talks on Instagram. But I want to have a little bit of a, a preface to this episode because I think it's required. I believe that we've entered into a space, culturally and socially, where to go against the mainstream narrative, to have discourse and dialogue around things that are perceivably on the fringe in some capacity, or that go against the, the normal way of looking at a certain situation— brings a lot of fire, brings a lot of heat within people's commentary. Uh, And what I've noticed is that people have largely online and offline lost the capacity to have regular discourse around certain topics, right? I mean, think about in the past year, how frequently you have disengaged from or completely avoided engaging in a political conversation or a conversation about the pandemic or a conversation about vaccines, simply because you believe and hold the belief that the conversation is pointless, that the conversation is not going to yield anything fruitful. And this is a, in my perspective, a a very scary sign of the times that when we lack the ability to have discourse, When we cease having the capacity to engage in dialogue, which is the foundational principle, one might argue, for a well-structured, well-operating society, right? At the foundation of a cohesive, coherent society is the ability to have discourse, is the ability to disagree with certain things but still maintain some resemblance of cohesion, As a culture, as a society, and really when the ability to have discourse begins to fray and starts to tear and we begin to enter into conversations with people, you know, weaponized and ready for battle and our identities, how we view ourselves as an individual, as a person are so heavily entrenched in the beliefs that we hold that when we enter into a discourse around politics, around vaccines, around uh, how, you know, maybe the pandemic has been uh, handled, that when we enter into those conversations, we actually cease and stop listening entirely. And we go into the modality of attack, of needing to um, almost brainwash the people that we are engaging with, and we lose the ability to really expand our awareness about what that other person might be trying to communicate. We lose our ability to understand other people, and we diminish our capacity to humanize the other person. And I think one of the most dangerous aspects of what I have seen in recent times when it comes to again politics, the pandemic, the virus, the vaccines, all of these different topics that are hot button issues is how radical and how quickly people on all sides of the spectrum are to dehumanize the other person that they 're speaking to, to objectify the other person and to turn them into some kind of a you know a, a moronic meme. And, and we sort of memify the other person. We, we literally turn them into a meme that we have seen spreading around on Facebook or Instagram. And, and we completely dehumanize them. And it, what it does is that it, it, it extracts our ability and takes away, erodes our ability to be able to have any kind of discourse that's outside of our bubble. And I get this because I think in many ways we're living in one of the most fear-based times that our collective has maybe experienced because we are plugged in to everyone, right? I mean, you, you're, the, the amount of different perspectives that you probably get on a daily basis, just by going on social media, you probably interact with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And their belief systems and how they view the world. And in some ways, we as human beings were not designed for that, right? We weren't designed to interact with the literal collective unconscious manifest through the internet. Right? When you're interacting with all of these other people, you're interacting with what Jung referred to as the collective unconscious. Because you're interacting with people who you have no point of reference to. You don't know their lives. You don't know anything about them. You, I mean, they literally live in an alternative universe on social media because Facebook, Instagram, uh, Google curates a completely different virtual reality, digital reality that that other person lives in and that you live in. And so when we start to engage in these conversations with family, with friends, with you know random strangers online, what begins to happen is that we are trying to press our belief systems out onto other people and there seems to be this plague of virtuousness that that somehow everyone is is coming from this very virtual uh, virtuous place and trying to force other people to live and believe and act in the way that they do because the way that they live the way that they believe the way that they act is the most moral is the most virtuous now what does that have to do with today's conversation has to do with today's conversation because I brought Zach Bush onto this show to talk about some of these hot button issues. Now, we start off by discussing what I can only describe as the biological evolution of human beings, of our ecosystem. And Zach basically looks at evolution and the the coming online of human beings from a biological, bacterial virology standpoint, and he he starts at the very beginning and and really unpack unpacks the history of biology, which I think is incredibly important. I was listening recently to a podcast, and the the gentleman being interviewed. It was an anthropologist, and he said, "We, you know, we do ourselves a disservice as human beings by not actually understanding biology and the way that it works. That one of the most foundational uh, pieces that we that we need to know." So Zach talks about that, and he ties it into our farming practices. He ties it into the food that we eat. He ties it into the environmental impact that it has, not only on our ecosystem but specifically on our bodies. I think that the information that's embedded in here can be challenging for some people to receive because then he goes into uh, the virus, the you know COVID, coronavirus, and begins to talk a little bit about the pandemic that we've put ourselves in. And he talks a little bit about the vaccine as well. And he'll be coming back on the show to dive more into that topic specifically. Um, I (laughs) may have used a little bit of social pressure uh, by getting him to, you know, agree to be on the podcast while he was on the podcast doing, you know, doing that live. Uh, But we talk about some of these issues from a medical perspective, right? I mean, Zach is one of the most um, accredited researchers and medical doctors in America. And so, you know, he's not some Internet researcher, right, that has just gone out and and sort of, uh, you know, found a couple articles that relate to his belief system. He has been in this field for a very, 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 very long time and has a deep wealth of information. And I think the one thing that I extracted from this conversation is, if I could sort of summarize it, it's that we have a very skewed way of looking at health and wellness within our culture and our society that perhaps is fundamentally broken, and that we have taken capitalism and infused agriculture with capitalistic endeavors and systems, and that has damaged the way that we produce our food, it's damaged the 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 food that we consume, and it's damaging us in many ways, as he talks about uh, and, and creates that correlate. But it also damages the way in which we approach specific outbreaks, pandemics, experiences like the one that we're in, because we don't go and look at sometimes the, the root of the health issues that are taking place, but rather we you know, sort of put a proverbial Band-Aid over the bullet hole wound. And we don't talk about the sort of systemic issues that are behind um, the shooting. And so that's kind of what we get into in this podcast. I really appreciate his perspective. I would love to hear yours. And I would love to hear what your thoughts are on this and what questions you would have In a follow-up. So feel free to email me with those questions, info at mantalks.ca or direct message me on Instagram at mantalks. As per usual, please share it with somebody that you think will find it interesting. And let me know who else you would like to have maybe in this vein as we venture forward into other uh, uncharted territory on this show. So thank you so much for tuning in. And without further delay, please welcome Dr. Zach Bush.
1: Glad to be with you, Connor looking forward to being
0: with the audience as well yeah likewise likewise well thank you so much for joining me do you actually do you prefer i didn't ask you this before we jumped on but do you prefer dr bush do you prefer zach is it zach's good Zach's okay. good. i just didn't want to i'm like and you, you never know i've had some philosophers and and astrophysicists on the show and it's like it's doctor right so <laughs> it's like i'm just making sure covering wow. my grounds um well wonderful well i you know. I did a tremendous amount of research leading up into this, and listened to a bunch of shows that you've been on. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, I, you know, I think I I recently just had a, a child, and and I was watching your. Um, he's actually eight weeks eight weeks old. I think yesterday. The milk dragon. Oh, you saw that, my little milk <laughs> dragon. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. My little milk dragon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So good, um, but you know, I was I was watching one of your after school specials. Uh, and it was really talking about the impact of uh, of I think it was Roundup and some of the chemicals that were in there. And so as I as I researched how to approach this conversation, I was like, man, there's so many different things I want to talk to you about. I feel like you're one of those guests that I really would love to dive into multiple topics for like three hours, um, you know. But obviously that that poses some challenges. So. I think where I want to begin is just with a broad question that we can then narrow down from. And the question is, where where are we right now as a species, as a collective, in, in your eyes, um, you know, based on your work and your field? And I think just to sort of frame this, like, how would you describe to your grandchild, let's just say in 50 years from now, what we are facing in our culture, in our society, in our health systems? and and what we're dealing with right now. And, and maybe we'll just start there and sort of see where that takes us.
1: Yeah. I'm joining you from my clinic in Virginia. I'm an internal medicine doctor, uh, subsequently endocrinology and metabolism specialty, and then hospice and palliative care were kind of the trajectory of my career and uh, started my medical school uh, training in, in 1992. And so you know, unbeknownst to me at that time, I would be witness to the biggest you know transformation of human health in in the history of mankind and and so in bridging that from 1992 to, to 2022 here as we approach the end of this year, that interesting 30 year period has really encapsulated you know this explosion of chronic disease on the planet and uh, when I say planet, it really goes beyond the human experience. Right, we're watching a somewhere between 1,000 to 10,000 time acceleration of extinction rates of species on the planet over that 30-year period. Uh, 1,000 is the most conservative. Most scientists are in the 5,000 to 10,000 range
2: of uh, yeah, estimates of the speed of extinction now of species. And so we're in the midst of the sixth-grade extinction that
1: began sometime in the 60s, 1960s, 1970s, somewhere in there is where things started to pick up a little bit of steam. And then we went into the kind of the logarithmic stuff right towards the the end of the last century, 1998, 2004, that six-year period was just explosive with everything from neurodegenerative conditions and neurologic dysfunction in children. It was autism, spectrum disorder exploded, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, sleep disorders. Uh, collapse of sexual uh, sex drive, sexual function, and then as uh, screw up in puberty in that time as well. And so we see uh, fertility starting to be, you know, compromised even before the fertile years. And so a lot of children presenting with precocious puberty, especially young girls. Uh, by the time we were hitting like 2005, we had one in four girls in America with polycystic ovarian syndrome which is an irregular menses uh, prone to uh, poor poor fertility. And over the same period of time, we saw sperm counts go from you know, uh, around 100 uh, million per, per milliliter of sperm down to about 47, 49 milliliters uh, or million sperm per milliliter. And that you know, having of the, the the mammalian sperm count or at least the human sperm count happened across all Western nations. So it wasn't a U.S. problem. That was Europe, Australia. Anybody who had adopted a Western civil uh, Western sort of kind of lifestyle of food system, pharmaceutical system had seen this collapse and in, in fertility. We now have one in three males in the United States with sperm counts too low to reproduce. And so uh, with one in three males infertile and one in four women infertile, we're looking at the end of a species with the current trajectory we're on. And so current estimates are that we may have 60 to 80 years left uh, as a species in a reproductive state, and then you know, we diminish from there. So really stunning and, and startling fact that we've arrived at this point where we have the science and the data collection and the cognitive intellectual capacity to witness be witness to our own extinction and not only that be able to track it right back to the exact chemicals and exact you know toxins and exact separations from nature that we we engineered to allow for this extinction event to happen you know between 1950 and today so um a stunning 50-year history 70-year history that unfolds in the context of a 200,000 year old species you know and so homo sapiens sapiens which we named ourselves with wise twice with the word sapiens i don't know why we did that but i mean i know that scientifically we felt like we were a slight diversion from the original homo sapien we slightly different skull structure something like that but it's just interesting that it ended up being you know hung on the the word wise twice (laughs) so homo sapiens sapiens the full full name of our species and uh you know, there's not any evidence so far that we're terribly wise. So I think the point where we're in to answer your question is we are at a tipping point and either we choose to be something we've never been before or we continue the path into extinction. And as a hospital doctor, I can tell you that's not necessarily a bad thing. I can see some of the most extraordinary transformations, the most extraordinary real life moments happen at the bedside of my patients that are dying and they come Come into some of the most beautiful retrospective experiences of their life, and realize that everything had been in its place, and what they thought was chronic failure was actually the universe unfolding in their lives in very specific ways.
2: Mm. to achieve things that they didn't even recognize uh, in, in the prospective state, and so uh, it's exciting to think that
1: regardless of extinction or complete transformation, we're gonna, we're about to come to a point as a species where we suddenly see ourselves differently, and we either realize the beauty of our 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 errors. And I think those are not, you know, mutually exclusive. I think the mistakes and failures that are made along a path are the journey. And the journey is ultimately beautiful. And I think a lot of us would say that in retrospect, it's the traumas, it's the broken relationships, it's, you know, these these pivot points in life that are brought about by cataclysmic events end up being the things that shape us and putting us on the correct path. And so we don't know what the correct path for Homo sapiens is, but perhaps the correct path is our souls are on a journey to realize some enlightened state, some sort of connectivity outside of the human experience, and it needed this human experience to be in a finite moment to move something karmically or energetically in the universe that we can't see. It's too big of a chessboard for us to comprehend on this small three-dimensional plane that we live on here, and so it's it's possible that you know, everything is is right, even if extinction is the end point, but we're going to get to see that. And so I feel really honored to be witness to this pivot point. And I expect in my lifetime, if I'm graced with more decades of life, I'll get to be witness to this, this great awakening of that will happen in our death or, or in our complete transformation.
0: Very, very well said. Thank you for that. You know, because I think over the last several weeks, eight weeks, you know, I I took off all this time to be with my son and welcome him into the world. And, and even leading up to having him, you know, my wife and I talked a lot about what are we bringing a child into? And do we actually want to do that? And I feel like a lot of people have that question today, you know, like, (laughs) should I even have a child and and what am I bringing them into? Um, But I think over the last eight, several weeks, eight weeks, i took time and space off and and I really dove into a lot of content. And I think the stark um, sort of alarming thing that I was left with was how many really intelligent people are saying some iteration of what you're saying. And that was really alarming for me when when I heard and it's it's all different vantage points and, and sort of different versions of this, but but people sort of saying like, we're in a pretty dire situation. And I think you have such a a unique perspective. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you on the show to be able to, to talk about that inflection point that maybe happened back in the 40s, 50s, and what actually in your perspective and your education led to some of what we're seeing today and the breakdown, the rise of autism, the the decrease in uh, testosterone and sperm counts, and the rise in different types of cancers, and I think you talked about, um, you know, men having a spike in Parkinson's disease and women having a spike in, um, Alzheimer's. in Alzheimer's. Uh, and so, I, I would love to gain a little bit more insight on, from your view and your vantage point, what do you think has been uh, one of the major contributing factors to the the sort of genetic biological decline that we seem to be facing in this this impending inflection point that we're heading towards?
1: Yeah. So in the 1940s, uh, coming out of World War II, we had a a repurposing of fossil fuels, which was kind of a second time this had happened within that century. And so in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, the great wealth that had occurred in Western civilization was around you know the group that had been called the robber barons. You know these were the the railroads and the fossil fuel guys, and so this was oil and oil and gas and and the train industry that created the most mega wealth that had ever been occurred in the world. You know it, it, we were starting to see you know single families having more wealth than you know empires previously it had. You know and so the Rockefellers, and then by the mid century the Rothschilds and these massive, you know, uh, economic forces that were were brewing in these few families. And, you know, my grandfather worked with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt in the White House and uh, watched, you know, the the New Deal come through for the rebuilding of the country out of the Dust Bowl. And, you know, it's so there's my grandfather, one generation back, you know, driving through countryside of west virginia with eleanor roosevelt actually driving the model t Mm -hmm. he's you know sitting next to her and she would drive herself all over to these soup kitchens and you know soup lines because america was starving and and so it's it's inconceivable to anybody living in an urban environment with any affluence right now that our country was starving so recently even more inconceivable is we are, again, uh, one in four children, one in six children, somewhere in that range in Kansas right now is going to sleep hungry every night. That is the worst uh, hunger event we've had in, in the United States since the Dust Bowl. is currently happening in the breadbasket of America. And we've been told that you know, we are growing food for the world when, in fact, we're not. And, and we're actually not even growing food for ourselves anymore. We've become highly dependent on very long supply chains for real food. And what we're growing in in Kansas, which is our most agriculturally rich state, 95% of Kansas is under agricultural use, but they're not growing food. They have to import 95% of their food. They're growing commodities for primarily fossil fuel additives. And so the ethanol that goes into our fuel is the the primary driver of uh, the growth in crop production that we've seen over the last 40 years. We haven't actually increased the amount of food production in the Midwest at all. Uh, we've only increased, you know, fossil fuel and small increases in, in the vast amount of commodities that we make for beef, pork, you know, poultry industries. All of this, and so you know, amazingly, we're that recent, you know, to a crisis of complete starvation, dust bowl. We've killed the soils from overtilling, and instead of you know learning from that. At the end of World War II, we realized we could cheat, and instead of taking care of the soil and doing crop rotation and composting and good carbon management, we instead discovered if we took fossil fuels that we now had an abundance of because the war machine had ground down, and we suddenly have all this glut of oil, we we were able to translate that into MPK fertilizers. And with those fossil fuel fertilizers pouring onto crops, it immediately created green plants but what was you know obviously missing from that was a lot of micronutrients and any soil intelligence. And so we were missing the fungi, the bacteria, the microbiome that we now realize in the last 20 years of science revolution is that is the whole foundation for life itself. Like You can't be a mammal, let alone a human, without this rich microecosystem that begins in our soil system, translates into our food, which then reinforces and inspires a complex microbiome within our gut that then feeds us. And so we we started this real erosion, you know, 100 years ago, late 1800s. And then it really accelerated when we became lazy with the Green Revolution that happened in the 1940s and 50s, pulling all this NPK fertilizer into the ground. What immediately resulted from that was really weakened plants for the first time. So we started growing a lot of monocrop. We were growing tons of wheat and corn and less soybean at the time, but a lot of wheat and corn. And... And what was happening is the plants were getting more and more prone to invasive weeds and insects. And so the chemical company that had really started with, with Rockefellers, right? And so Rockefeller had put together the 1910 Flexner Report. So he hired Dr. Flexner and his team, from one of the big universities in 1910, to write the Flexner Report, which basically was a propaganda piece to discredit herbalism, homeopathy, any naturally occurring medicine, osteopathy, all these natural medicine and medical practices that were really thriving at the time, the Flexner Report was built to damn all of those because Rockefeller had discovered that for all of the wealth he had accumulated in oil and gas, it was a fraction of what he could earn if he turned that oil into chemicals. And so the whole beginning of the pharmaceutical revolution was that we could take fossil fuel, you know, compounds and convert them ultimately to drugs. And then instead of selling a gallon of gas for a you know a few, you know, a quarter or something or 10 cents at the time or whatever it was, they could sell it for many dollars, you know, hundreds of dollars of that same gallon of gas could go into if it was chemically modified into drugs. So that's the beginning of the mega wealth of the West starting to repurpose itself into the pharmaceutical
2: industry. And we saw that switch with the Flexor Report. That's the moment the AMA was born, the American Medical Association, which would become kind of the, the strong arm, uh, kind of the mafia of of medicine and would, you know, damn
1: anything that came out that was in you know conflict with the message that we need more technology and we need more drugs to solve the problem of diseases. Hmm. So that really got reinforced in the American mind, I think, with the antibiotic revolution that happened during World War II, as we discovered penicillin, which, of course, is a natural substance produced by fungi. Because, of course, fungi know how to keep bacteria in check. But instead of telling the story of "Oh my gosh, it's so exciting! The microbiome knows how to keep itself regulated," we had said it and said, "Oh, look, we can kill the microbiome." And so, germ theory that had come out of you know a long debate with Luis Pasteur and in the in, in the French, you know, academia, he was arguing with another guy named uh, Bouchamp. And Bouchamp was really recognizing through exquisite research, observational research and twins and everything else that but disease penetrance and specifically infectious diseases at the time, things like tuberculosis, cholera, and the like, did not show up the same despite identical genetics. And so he was starting to make observations that Germs don't kill people. It's some change in the terrain of the body that leads to the the prevalence of an infection or a disease or some. So he was the first one to really start to understand that we have an innate immune system. And that immune system is the result of a complex ecosystem that included the, the environment around us. So he was observing that the food environment that you put people in, the air pollution that you put them in would correlate with disease propensity. Uh, rather than genetics. And of course, the word genes and the word bacteria didn't even really exist at the time. Uh, but but they had a, a version of the concept of microbes at the time, and they had a version of the concept of you know, inherited traits uh, that would ultimately become DNA and genes by the 1950s. So we were in the midst
2: of this war between the idea of terrain and germ theory that raged
1: you know, into the early 1900s. And then Flexner Report all right, germs are real, germs are what's killing us. We need more technology to kill germs. We need to rev this up. We need to sterilize everything. And so a good idea to sterilize your surgical instruments if you're working on somebody with gangrenous limb before going to the next patient, but then extrapolate that to we should sterilize humans was the the mistake we made. And so uh, that's really where we began the erosion of life on Earth was our combat against the microbiome. And we certainly did it at a grand scale with our agriculture as we developed more and more mechanized agriculture in the late 1800s, early decades of the 20th century. But then when we developed the chemical compounds from fossil fuels that would ultimately be the largest antibiotic reservoir in the world, we would really decimate life on the planet. And so that started in the 1970s in earnest uh, with the glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in the Roundup that you mentioned earlier. And glyphosate is uh, a very potent antibiotic. It kills bacteria, fungi. The way in which it kills bacteria and plants is by blocking an enzyme pathway that produce, produces some of the critical amino acids that that account for like thirty percent of the, the plant volume. And so you you, you're, you lose all this protein synthesis uh, by blocking the, this shikimate pathway, an enzyme pathway in the cells. And when you block that, you lose the, the building blocks for proteins. And essential amino acids are only nine. And with glyphosate, you lose three of the nine. So you've lost 30% of the critical building blocks that you can't produce in your body for the 280,000 proteins that you need to, to build out of those simple protein, simple amino acid building blocks. So kind of like a Lego set, you've got 22 different Legos that build the 280,000 proteins. And you've certainly played with Legos long enough to know that you can invent almost an infinite number of of buildings out of your your 22 shapes and sizes and colors and in the same way as maybe the alphabet you know making hundreds of thousands of words the vowels are the most critical and so your vowels those five vowels in the english language you know you can't you start deleting those you misspell every word you know and that's what happens when you delete these nine essential amino acids you're not just missing three of them the the 22, you're missing three of the vowels. <laughs> yeah. hmm. And so you start misspelling proteins throughout the human body. And when you misspell a protein, you lose function. And it's not necessarily zero function, but it's compromised function. And so now, as we start to have children in an environment where our food system is steeped in this chemical glyphosate, we currently pour four and a half billion pounds of this chemical into our soil systems, water systems worldwide every year. Four and a half billion billion pounds of a chemical that ties up the critical nutrients, acts as a chelator as well. So it chelates minerals out of the soil and then blocks the enzyme pathway to, to make the essential amino acids. We're literally robbing our food system and therefore our bloodstream of the nutrients that would build life. And therefore we see, you know, chronic disease in our children go from, you know, two to 4% in the 1960s and 70s to 52, 54%, not just in the U.S., but Europe as well. Germany is currently reporting 54% of their children with a chronic disorder or disease. So it's an extraordinary journey into this you know, pressure cooker of can biology survive the constant deletion of its building blocks.
0: Jeez. Whew. Okay. I feel like I have to breathe after that one because it's like, I mean, I feel like what you just laid out is a is a pretty clear pathway in many ways. And I think where it led us was and I'm I'm gonna just ask a few questions because um I mean first off I'm I'm pretty layman's in, in this area. You know, I'm not I'm not um super proficient, but I can hear some of my listeners asking questions like touch on the microbiome again. Like I've heard that word a lot and like what is it and why is it so important? And then I would love for you to just um, talk a little bit about glyphosate because kind of what I heard was glyphosate when injected into the onto the plants and into the soils not only robs the soils of certain nutrients that are required, but it actually has an impact on the capacity to to have the proteins within our body, within, within that, the specific acids in our body produced properly. And so I would love for you to, one, talk about the microbiome just a little bit more and the importance of it within the ecosystem of the body. And then two, just touch again on, on glyphosate and, and its impact within our system and some of the things that correlate with that.
1: Yeah. So the microbiome is uh, you a know, fascinating new universe, literally. And so we, up until the 1960s, I would say, just saw bacteria as the bad guy. They were the germs that were causing pneumonia or sinusitis or whatever ailment we saw, tuberculosis. And uh, the microbiome is little bacteria. Uh, they're the most famous of them. Uh, the bacteria are about 30,000 species that we've managed to kind of demonstrate within the human environment you know the human organ systems and we used to think that the the skin and maybe the colon were the places where bacteria you know persisted but we now know that there's actually bacteria within every organ system of the body we have these tiny little bacterium that live inside the brain and cerebral spinal fluid although you know so the healthy human body we're starting to have to come to terms with is is not some sterile place that is run by some you know uh marauding immune system that just kills everything that's non-human. That was definitely the model that was handed to me in 1990 as a doctor, but that's not the case. We now know that the immune system is is actually not even human in itself. The immune system is literally a dance between the microbes and the single cell organisms and the multicellular organisms. And those multicellular organisms within us are not even limited to the human cells. Like we have 70 trillion human cells, but that's grossly outnumbered by you know, the the bacteria themselves. So we have somewhere around 1.4 quadrillion
2: bacteria in a human body now. But that's dwarfed by the the tiny little bacterium that live inside each human cell. Each
1: human cell would be unable to survive. In fact, any mammalian or multicellular organism would be unable to survive without these tiny little bacterium uh, that are, are the result of archaea, which were the very first bacteria that showed up on the planet some three and a half to four billion years ago. The archaea showed up and they could survive in volcanoes and sulfur acid baths and like the origin of earth kind of toxicity. These archaea were extremely resilient and they were fermenters. Uh, They could ferment energy out of slow digestion of carbohydrates and the things uh, around them. And so these archaea became really good at swapping genetic information. So they they did something called horizontal gene transfer, where if they found a new gain of function or a new niche or opportunity or a new new gene that worked they would swap it immediately with all of the, the surrounding bacterium and so they got really good at exchanging information and the result was biodiversification and so that new gene in a new environment would lead to a new function which would lead to a new species of bacterium so over billions of years this gene transfer between single-celled organisms exploded And then about 3 billion years ago, maybe as far back as 3.5 billion years ago, we suddenly got viruses. And the viruses are not part of the microbiome. The the microbiome is really living organisms, is the word micro and biome, small living organisms. And to be a living organism, you need to be able to create your own fuel and you need to be able to reproduce. And the viruses can do neither. They cannot reproduce themselves and they can produce no energy. They have no machinery within them that demand energy. They're just packets of genetic information. And so the breakthrough of the virus was that bacterium found out that if they put, instead of just abutting another bacterium to do horizontal gene transfer where they could swap things in the neighborhood, they found out if, or whether they were conscious of the experience or not. The, the biologic opportunity for adaptation and biodiversification favored the results of viruses, which was... If you wrap that piece of genetic update, that new gene, you know, gain of function in a protein packet uh, that we would call an envelope, and send that far and wide, you could go not just next door, you could get it you know, across the world. And so this was the the origin of, of bacterium starting to be able to spread far. And so now we can do very rapid biodiversification on the planet because you no longer had to wait for. Hundreds of millions of years for bacteria to slowly move genetic information around the planet. Viruses were an explosion of opportunity for planet Earth as we started to be able to exchange gen- genetic information at high speeds, and so that was what led to the fungi. And the fungi are the second, you know, major kingdom within the microbiome, and of course include things like yeast and you know all, all of this that we're familiar with in the health world much of which we fear, right? We fear the fungal infections in our bone marrow transplant units. We fear yeast infections, whether it be a woman after antibiotics for her urinary tract infection, antibiotics, or a child with uh, antibiotic exposure to food getting thrushed, whatever it is. We we fear these yeasts and everything else, which is amazing because they really have become the foundation of multicellular life. So without the the fungi, we would have never made the leap from bacteria to, to earthworm. And so the fungi allowed for a completely different, mechanism for digestion where they, instead of trying to digest stuff within them, like the bacterium did, they outsource digestion to the external environment around them. And they just exude digestive nutrients, digestive enzymes out around them, and they turn the whole world into their stomach. And so now they're absorbing the nutrients that they are digesting outside of themselves. And so their digestive tract is literally the, the soils of the earth. And so it's a brilliant mechanism where the microbiome within soil becomes the workforce to do their extra work. And they exude stuff that attracts bacteria and they have their external gut that's feeding them all the time. So, so far, the fungi are the most intelligent, most efficient workforce on the planet because they externalize very quickly their workforce. When the multicellular animals started to develop, we learned from the fungi that we can't do all that work. Because a multicellular cell can't produce its own energy. And so it has to rely on bacteria. To do that internally, we absorb the archaea. And so the first single cell to multicellular organism leap occurred when two archaea, an archaea and a methane producing mycobacterium, combined. And so at some point, an archaea swallowed a methane producing bacterium and it became a double walled organism. And that would be the first mitochondrion. And that mitochondrion was a revolutionary leap in, in in life on Earth because it allowed us to switch from fermentation to oxygen based revolution here. And I, I promise all of this minutiae is worthwhile. Like this it it sounds like just a waste of time to put the crown on all this in your head. Not but at all. It is the question of why are we going extinct right now? Um, and so the mitochondrion takes carbohydrates and fat in the form of fatty acids and breaks it down into the exact same molecule which is acyl-CoA in a single enzyme step through the first membrane through the second membrane it turns it into acetyl-CoA so you get fatty acids or, or carbohydrate and you have all these nutrition people of course bitching about oh carbs are bad no fat is bad no fat is good no carbs are good they're exactly the same freaking molecule like as soon as they consume by a mitochondria you're the same Acyl CoA. Acyl CoA goes into acetyl CoA. Acetyl CoA goes to the respiratory loop, uses oxygen and hydrogen, which is basically the extraction from water, which is the most abundant resource within the human body. And that water turns hydrogen and oxygen through the respiratory chain of the mitochondria, and we get ATP, adenosine triphosphate, at 10x the efficiency that fermentation did. So the ability to produce energy 10 times more effectively was the leap of life on Earth. And that's when we went really into an exciting explosion of diversification on the planet from plant life. The multicellular plants came out of the fungi, which are more unicellular. And then uh, from the plants, we we got into enough carbon you know, material to start to allow for the, the complex you know, multicellular organisms to occur. And among those were the protozoa, which were the first multicellular organisms that really are single cells, but they have all of the features of a multicellular organism. And protozoa remain very important in our microbiome. And so we have a lot of protozoa. We have a lot of, you know, and famous among these are the bad guys, like malaria is a protozoa. We always hear about how bad malaria is. But we're going to very soon find out that that malaria protozoa, when in a healthy relationship to the greater microbiome, is very important for the health and immune system of people in Africa or the endemic areas of malaria throughout the tropics, et cetera. And so it's a very, you know, new world where what we used to think was just all bad. If we're starting to find it out it's the reverse, it's it's literally the building blocks of life uh, at every step. And so that's kind of the microbiome, bacteria, fungi, protozoa, if you want to clump those in there, you can, they're single cell, even though they're more, more like human cells. But then, then the, the leap to your second part of the question, which was how does glyphosate affect the human body? the first 10 ways that it affects the human body is by killing everything I just told you about. So the, the very first things that it starts to undermine are the bacterium within the soil that are doing the, gen, are the both the genetic database that are producing all of the genomic complexity on the planet. Uh, the, the microbiome, you're at like 2 billion genes that have been discovered in the, in just the bacterium so far. And the fungi were now at
2: an estimate of somewhere around maybe 125 trillion different genes in the, in the world, the kingdom of the fungi. Humans, as a Homo sapien, I have 20,000 genes. So you compare my 20,000 to the 2 billion of, or 2 million of, of
1: the bacterium within me, or the 125 trillion, these numbers are so grotesquely huge that it's obvious that the intelligence of the way in which we adapt and change is coming from the viruses. Uh, and the, most of those viruses are being born from the bacterium. And when we know that a virus is coming straight from or a genetic piece of information is coming straight from a bacterium, we often call them bacteriophage, you might hear that term bacteriophage, that's the same thing as a virus, it just happens to have origin directly from a bacteria. But if you look back in history, you realize everything came from a bacteria, all genetic information was churned out of that life within the soil, and ultimately, the ocean and beyond. And so we have this massive, you know, ecosystem, bacteria in the air, the oceans, the water systems, the... Soils and and this is the genomic intelligence of biodiversification and adaptation on the planet. Keep in mind virus is not living, organisms not part of the microbiome. They don't respond to antibiotics the same way, blah, blah, blah. And so to clump those into the same thing of like germs is inaccurate. A virus is not a germ. A virus is a genetic packet of information that's been sent by either another species or your own species. And so as soon as you see something go pandemic for humans, we're producing all of that. Mm-hmm. That's one
2: human sending an important genetic information packet to another human. And we wouldn't
1: do that, but for very careful rationale, the decision to make viral proteins and repeat the structure of a virus and send that out is one of the most regulated steps in human and otherwise biology. It takes 280 different proteins to be present in the correct correlation and concoction of symphony of genetic controls to decide to make that protein ribosome go and, and translate that rna or dna into a protein and so to the all these textbooks and all these animations you see going around like covid19 comes in and binds your cell and takes over the genomic apparatus makes tons of COVID, and then you turn into this infectious machine that's an old that that's 40 year old science hmm. 40 year old science is the same science that basically said that there's no such thing as depression right like there. This is archaic information that viruses somehow took, take over ourselves. They don't at all. They they move genetic information in and out of my cells every day at an extreme rate. Current, currently, if you did PCR across the entire viral spectrum on my blood right now, I would be expressing somewhere around 10 to the 8th to 10 to 15 viruses in my bloodstream right now. Uh, your child, how old is your baby? A month old? Eight, eight weeks, old. Two, two months. Eight, eight weeks old. So your baby, um, when your baby hit... Uh, What's his name? I feel funny
0: calling him a baby. So it's okay. His name is code code. So
1: code when he was seven days old, um, so code even right now can't make antibodies. It's going to be another four or six months before he knows how to really complete an antibody response, which is a complex cellular kind of adaptation downstream. At one week of age, Code had 10 to the 8th viruses in every gram of stool that he produced. And I'm betting that you guys witnessed a fair amount of grams of stool. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> there was a lot of diaper changing going on in those couple months as, there was. as, as the milk dragon got going. And so what he was doing is, is taking an enormous amount of genetic information from the microbiome of his gut that was brand new, right? Because he didn't have a microbiome until the moment he went through mom's vaginal canal. Uh, vaginal delivery, maybe TMI, but C-section. Yeah. C-section, yeah. C-section. So so he, he didn't get through vaginal canal, but he got it the moment he suckled on mom's breast. So the moment he suckled on mom's breast, he started to adopt the bacterium from her skin. And so um he'll have some challenges in that in that he's gonna have to develop enteric bacterium and that's gonna be a slower process um because of C-section, but he can get there. He'll 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 fight through that and ways in which you could help him do that is Uh, get him around as many pets as possible, especially dogs. Dogs have a very smart gut microbiome to humans, and they lick lick their butt all the time. And so they're the best fecal transplant device we have found so far, the dog in the house. And so get yourself a dog and put that around the kid because the C-section, was. uh, there wasn't much organic garden for him to dig into initially. Um, But suffice to say, the air he was breathing, everything he's touching is exuding this genetic information that we call viruses, and his, his whole gut is full, 10 to the 8th, you know, Ten billion viruses in that that first week. And he has no antibodies to fight viruses because it turns out viruses are not fought by antibodies at all. So this whole current science that you're being told that you need a vaccine to produce an antibody spike protein to protect you from a virus, that's not the biology of viruses that we know since 2010. Ironically, we gave the Nobel Prize of Chemistry to Dr. Duadna and her partner uh, who discovered Cas9, which is an enzyme that sits inside of the, the human cell and determines which virus you're going to transcribe or which protein you're going to make. And it is the database that remembers which viruses have been there and what you've done with them, what you allowed to translate and everything else. And uh, in my recent presentation, if you want to three hours on genetic engineering, which is a pretty interesting dive into how insane we are to go from corn all the way to our current, you know, genetic modification through the vaccine programs. You need that three-hour dive. I think you know, as a consumer, to not know that information is to 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 ignore the the, the bullet uh, that's coming at us. So where uh, where is that? Where people... dive there? I, I give the 20, I, I take a, a. I've got the clip where she's on a TED talk and she mm-hmm. talks about her discovery of cas nine in twenty sixteen. And what she says is that cas nine is literally the equivalent of the body's highest intelligence of a vaccine passport. That's fascinating that she was allowed to say that in 2016. If she had come out and said that in 2020, her Instagram account would have been taken down, would have been shut down. And so just four years ago, you've got the Nobel Prize winner for discovering Cas9 talking about how the body has the intelligence of vaccination within it, and it doesn't have anything to do with antibodies. It has to do with this protein synthesis decision at Cas9. Well, interestingly, the reason she's winning the chemistry Nobel Prize is not because she developed... You know, the science that would discover Cas9 and would be the great discovery that the human immune system is in this extraordinary balance with all the viruses. Instead, Cas9 would become the primary mechanism for CRISPR, which is our current mechanism to genetically engineer humans and crops. And so we took what was the most important discovery in the immune system and we co-opted it as a technology to start genetically modifying ourselves against the very microbiome that Cas9 worked with to incre- and create the intelligence of the human genome. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I'm quite literal. The Cas9 and our, our mechanisms of, of expression of the viral genome built the human genome. We know that over 50% of my 20,000 human genes that I got from mom and dad were inserted into the human germline into the the germline is a description of the DNA we pass on through sperm and ovum, got inserted into the human germline or into the human sperm and ovum history by viruses. And so without that viral insertion, we wouldn't have had half of our genome. The other 40% that we've been able to track outside of the human experience is, is through horizontal gene transfer from the bacteria in our guts and immune systems and environment and so either by horizontal gene transfer, just like the archaea and the bacterium used to do it, you know, 4 billion years ago, or by direct viral and, you know, influence and, and spread of this genetic information, we became mammals hmm. and we ultimately became humans. And these were critical updates. You can't have a placenta that works for, to allow for live birth without a single viral update that happened a few billion years ago or a few hundred million years ago. It allowed for the the dawn of of live birth and and moving away from reptiles and all that into into the mammals. And so that shift from mammal to bird, or I'm sorry, from reptile to bird to mammal, was allowed by viral gain of function. And so another example is the one that allows sperm to dump its uh, mitochondrion before it uh, fertilizes the human egg. Without that, we would have no functional you know, uh, passage of genetic
2: information from mom to baby.
1: And so these critical updates uh, that were direct insertions of viruses that allowed us to make these leaps in, in biology. So there was not like a bird that slowly became a human. It was suddenly a genetic update from a virus was put into a, a germ line and suddenly a placenta could develop instead of an egg. And, and so that was the kind of these paradigm leaps that, that we see that must have happened in the fossil record because we don't see any evidence of evolution in the fossil record. We see these bizarre paradigm leaping you know, jumps from one species to another over time. And so those were definitely moments of high viral trans, transfection, viral intelligence accelerating within the life on the Earth. Interestingly, the things that induce those high rapid rates of intelligence are extinction level threats. And so when biology is threatened, it needs to make more adaptation. If things are well and you got plenty of food and everything else, you just keep reproducing yourself. You have no reason to change. Adversity creates change. And this is really mm-hmm. important if you're going through the mental health stories like you've done, Connor, and talked about in Mental Health Month. I really appreciate your insights into that. As men, as women, as humans... We are prone to this collapse of, of
2: of identity that we'll come back to in a minute and stuff like that. Is to glyphosate answer, but at
1: the foundation, I want us to be realizing that we became who we are because of this drive for life. And when you find yourself depressed, it's because you've you've lost your drive for life. You know, you've become separated from this sense of forward momentum, and the soul cannot tolerate that. And this is the danger, you know, and and ultimate punishment that we have found with with something like uh, the the extraordinary punishment that we give people when uh, we do something like solitary confinement, solitary confinement within two or three days, you've got somebody who was totally sane a moment ago uh, is now seeing voices, seeing people, hearing voices, seeing people, you know, it's it's psychotic within those three days because they have no, no input, no forward motion. And so that loneliness that happens when you lose momentum is profound. And interestingly, biology seems to deal with adversity and its need for an adaptation from that adversity better than it does the stagnancy. And so uh, biology plays that out, that adversity has created the abundance of life, the adversity and the adaptation of life and the, and the biodiversity that we see within it. So we're in the midst of the sixth grade extinction, which means that we may actually spawn the next highest intelligence leap in the next millions of years You know, after we go extinct due to the level of extinction stress we've put on the earth. And so is that maybe our bizarre contribution is did we show up to induce the sixth great extinction so that life could once more be completely transformed after us. It's an interesting, an interesting possibility.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, so two things, I mean, many things after, after listening to that, thank you for, for all of that incredible information um, and just the way that you position it. I think is, it's poignant. I think it it makes the point as well. Um, one, are you sure you don't have another hour? (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, shit, man, what do I do to get you to just stay here with me for an hour and have more conversation? Um, but, but two, it reminds me of this sentiment that Terrence McKenna had where he talks about, you know, maybe the earth has its own intelligence and that, you know, part of what, um, part of what the earth is doing is that, He talked about this push for us to become interplanetary species and for us to, you know, that that we are facing this extinction event and that we are even, you know, this is decades ago, he was talking about us facing an extinction event. And he said, you know, maybe we need to consider that this, the proverbial soil that we came from knows something that we don't and that we need to trace our lineage back to it. We need to listen. And the other voice that I heard was Dr. Wade Davis, who's an anthropologist in uh, in British Columbia and Vancouver. And he talks about how w- we do ourselves a disservice as a species by not knowing biology. You know, that that the basics, the basic principles of what makes us is un- unknown by like 99.99% of people. And I think that's part of why I wanted to have you on the show is that, you know, the more I've dug into your stuff, the more it's like, well, how the hell did I not know so much of this information about just simple things about how I operate, because a lot of the stuff that you talk about is needed, I think, in many ways. And the fact that we are continuing to use these pesticides and use these um, these chemicals on our on our crops uh, that are killing our soil, you know, I think I, I heard you say that we have something like 60 harvests left before most of our soil in North America is completely barren and unable to, to really produce anything anymore. Course, like that's global. We have 60 well, harvests left on earth. <laughs> Jesus. All right. So, okay. So I think we only have like a few minutes left. Um, and I want to honor your time and, uh, and, and get a, get a solid commitment that you'll come back on the show. <laughs> Can I get a verbal yeah. yes? This is my sales yeah. tactic right here.
1: <laughs> That's right. Lots of witnesses. Yeah, I happy to come back with you guys for sure. You know, and you know, I think you know one way to to you know conclude on you yeah, know, please. Your thoughts there are coming back to your question of how does glyphosate directly affect humanity? Because so I, I
2: mentioned that the first thing it does is poisons mitochondria, kills bacterium, kills
1: the nutrients in our food, all this stuff. But our our laboratory, I I started my own basic science lab back in 2012 when I left, after I left UVA, I used to develop chemotherapy. I was very much inside the box, pharmaceutical guy. Um, But as I started to discover nutrition through my chemotherapy, I was developing compounds of chemo through vitamin A compounds. And in that journey, I realized that not a single case of cancer had ever been caused by a lack of chemotherapy. And in the same way, not a single heart attack had ever happened from a lack of statin drugs. You know, <laughs> yeah. so it, really, the reason disease happens came to me as a pharmaceutical guy. Like, oh my God, it's all environmental. It's all got to do with the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe. If it's not that, then it's nothing. And there, there would be no such thing as chronic disease if we had contact with clean water, air, soil systems, and food uh, that would come from them. And so that's the journey that I've been on. And interestingly, as we ask that deeper question of why are we in an existential crisis? Not only are we in an extinction crisis, we're in a spiritual, cognitive, spiritual, psychosocial crisis. Why that? And bizarrely, that gets us to the answer of how does glyphosate directly affect the human body? And so our lab over the last eight years has been studying the effects of Roundup and glyphosate directly on the gut uh, as well as blood brain and the kidney tubules of the body and all of those systems of barriers so the gut barrier between your microbiome out there and all of the the nutrients and all that and your immune system that's in the one millimeter deep to your gut and sinonasal cavity that entire two surface you know two tennis courts and surface area is responding to an overwhelming amount of input now because Roundup destroys the tight junctions, the the Velcro that holds those billions of cells together that make an intact gut membrane, cyanonasal membrane. And so now we have environmental seasonal allergies. We're sensitive to pollens we've never been sensitive to before. We can't breathe the air. We were billions of years developed within. And in the same way, suddenly in the last two decades, we're allergic to everything. We're allergic to avocados and nuts and seeds and and when I was going through school, I had one kid in the school that was allergic to peanuts. There was one EpiPen in the nurse's station. Now you go into an elementary school and it's like EpiPen Central with everybody's names on it and what they're allergic to. And it's the most bizarre thing. This one's allergic to squash. You know, what the hell? Why well, we genetically modified squash in the 1990s so that it could be sprayed to directly with glyphosate? So what happens when you tear apart the, the, the Velcro between the cells of your gut is you develop leaky gut. Unfortunately, we've showed in the lab that as soon as the leaky gut injury happens, you open up the blood-brain barrier. So you get leaky gut and leaky brain, which now means the whole neurologic system, peripheral nerves, central nerves are overwhelmed in their immune function as well. So your whole body is in this chronic inflammatory state back. As you take glyphosate higher and higher quantities in the gut, you also, in that antimicrobial antibiotic effect, you lose the bacterium that are necessary to touch the enteric endocrine cells that make the serotonin for our brain. 90% 90% of the serotonin made in our body is made in the gut lining. And it can't be made if the, if the bacterium that are a specific species of bacteria aren't hanging on to the enteric, enteric cell. And so you have this incredible synergy between microbial life and the human brain that disappears. And so between the dissolving of our, our barriers, between the outside world and our human organism, we lose our, our biologic self-identity. And in the same moment, we lose the neurotransmitters That would give us the cognitive and intellectual capacity to see that same self-identity. And so if we did anything with Roundup, if we did anything with glyphosate as a molecule, we destroyed human self-identity. And this is where we struggle today as men, as women. We are losing our cellular sense of identity. The result is massive amounts of autoimmune disease, mass amounts of chronic inflammation and chronic disease as our bodies start to fight everything we have lost our identity and put ourselves into opposition with all of the nature that actually birthed humanity through the single chemical glyphosate in our food system. So if we were going to do anything, we would outlaw glyphosate today. And fortunately, with our work for a nonprofit, you can go to Farmer's Footprint and our bigger project is projectbiome.org. But Farmer's Footprint has been helping revolutionize the understanding and awareness of the need to switch to regenerative agriculture and food systems to immediately halt this poisoning of
0: of not only our food system, but poisoning of the human self identity. All right. Well, we're going to have those in the show notes so that people can um, check them all out and check out the information. Uh, again, I want to honor your time because we are, we're, we're pretty much up here, even though I have a few, I, I would love to have a few more questions for you. But, um, Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for your work, for your voice, for, um, for just sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. And I, you know, I think it it certainly needs to be out there. And so, any final words of, of where you would like people to go and check out your work or some of the causes, or do you list them there?
1: Sure. Yeah. Zach Bush, MD, is the other site for you. In, in addition to FarmersFootprint.us or ProjectBiome.org. Uh, But ZachBushMD.com is my educational website. It's worth going to. I've got a bunch of topics from pregnancy to mental health and beyond. But I would encourage you to go to the knowledge page there and uh, dive deep on the Global Health Education
2: uh, Initiative. So a year ago at the beginning of, uh, of this pandemic narrative that we've been living under, I saw the need for really radical education to
1: happen and it needed to be free and not behind paywalls and everything else. And so we created a free system that's been supported by the global community. Uh, We've got over 1,200 unique uh, donors now that have just given $10, $25 to keep the momentum going on this project. And uh, I've got a couple of the brilliant physicians and scientists behind me helped out. And we've got incredible physician panels on the innate immune system. Uh, I did an hour and 30 minute deep dive on the virome. If you want a lot more information on viruses than you heard today, that's a fascinating journey. Uh, More detail there to to get the refresher there and and a, a deeper dive. And then importantly, I did um, a three-hour topic a month and a half ago, which was called What Happened Last Year? And it takes you through all the public health statistics of globally what happened uh, over the last 20 years and to take into account the last 20 years of trajectory of disease, uh, specifically respiratory death, and then what happened last
2: year and how it fit in. and, And to realize that we were told a very myopic picture of data which
1: did not tell the whole story of what's been going on as we march into the great extinction event. And this year was not an anomaly. This year was exactly in line with all of the previous years. And so we did not have a, a shift. We certainly had a pandemic, but we have pandemics every year. Literally, we've had I think it's around 12,800 viruses have been tracked pandemically since 1976. So 12,800
2: pandemics since, since 1976. One more is hardly news. And yet we made it central to our entire philosophy
1: of the way in which we are opposed to nature and how it's attacking us. And that narrative is certainly furthering us down the path of destruction. And we need to realize that these viruses are literally not only a cry for help from biology, but also our pathway back towards an intelligent relationship to nature itself. So what happened last year is their three-hour deep dive. And then I just finished uh, GMO, uh, the GMO topic, which is, uh, I think it's titled GMO, Engineering Nature Out of Humanity. And it takes you on a thirty-year dive on the the mechanisms and technology of genetic engineering and how the current uh, vaccine industry has become you know the penultimate genetic engineering effort with Cas9 usurpation and all of this stuff with CRISPR. So a lot of exciting you know look of science there. Wow, we are brilliant scientists to be able to do what we do today compared to what we were capable of in the 1990s. It's is an extraordinary leap in technology. It's, it's further fascinating or further amazing than the cell phone, you know, but uh, all of that technology is clearly taking us in the wrong path. So do the deep dive there. I've got, you know, over a dozen hours of content uh, for you to learn from on the global health education stuff. And it it is stuff that you will want, you know, your children and grandchildren to know. And, And we need to do that. We need to change the education system. We need to re-educate our children to see see themselves as part of this beautiful world that we were born within and not in opposition to it. And so I think we have a help, hopeful and healthy future uh, if those children will be allowed to change direction. And to do that as parents, as a society, we're going to have to make space for that. And we're going to have to remove the military medical complex from our, from the influence on our children and let them think freely and think clearly. And to do that, they're going to have to have the clarity of the microbiome within them which means we need to get them out in nature. So get your kids out this weekend, dive into the dirt, spend as much time in the forest, the woods, the ocean, uh, as you can find the most wild (laughs) environments and and rewild those kids. uh, Because if we don't rewild humanity, we're going to disappear quick.
0: Hmm. So well said. What a, what a great place to, to end off our conversation here today. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. For everyone that's out there, uh, you can check out the show notes for all the links to go check out Zach Bush's work. And as always, don't forget to man it forward, share this podcast with somebody that you know will be interested in this conversation that would like to dive in, um, share your thoughts and your comments on the video and uh, wherever you're watching this. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.